put a title on my talk since it's required. <laughs> so the, t- the title that I came up with is um, Shedding the Layers of Fear. And we'll see if that's an appropriate title or not. <laughs> I was spending some time in the San Francisco Bay Area this summer, and since that used to be my home, and I also um, teach on the West Coast every year, I was asked to attend some of the sitting groups there, to lead some of the sitting groups. There's quite a few that go on in the Bay Area. And so one of the groups that I was facilitating I was giving a talk, and afterwards there were some questions and answers. And somebody asked me, how do you let go of the self? And I thought this was a <laughs> rather large question. I, I gave some kind of answer, which seemed satisfying at the time. However, after I left, and for the whole week afterwards, I kept reflecting on this question, how to let go of the self? How do you answer a question like this? And I finally (laughs) decided that it wasn't a very good question. (laughs) Maybe it was my way out. (laughs) But I actually thought perhaps it was the kind of question that if somebody dwells on for very long, it's, it's misleading, it's misguiding. And I think that the problem with this question is that it assumes that there is some problem with the self. And so therefore, it's something that has to be let go of, something we have to get rid of that there's some entity that has to go. And I don't think that the problem is with the self. I don't think this is what actually has to be let go of. I have a very favorite quote that Ramana Maharshi had said. Ramana Maharshi is one of the great saints of India, great sages, who died in 1950. But he had said that even after liberation, after realization, the self or the ego still has shape. But it's like a burnt rope. It has form, but it it has no strength to tie anything with. It still has shape and form, but it, there's, there's nothing, there's no power in it. So I don't know if we really have to look at this, the whole entity of self and get rid of it or destroy it, but perhaps we need to look at something else. It seems that there is some confusion that arises around this concept of ego or self. I mean, even in psychotherapy, there is so much talk of 
building the self, you know, getting, building a strong sense of self, having a strong ego so that we can function well in the world. You know? I remember years ago when somebody met me and one of the comments that they made about me was I had a strong sense of self. You know, and it was it was a compliment. <laughs> you know, that's that's before I was a Buddhist. <laughs> I may not have taken it as a compliment at the time. <laughs> There's also the the line, perhaps you've heard, you have to be somebody before you're nobody. No. So this is all pointing to kind of a building up of self. But here we talk about this letting go, letting go of self. But I think that what is really at issue, what we really have to look at, and which might be a more helpful and accurate question, is how do we let go of the suffering? How do, we, how do we let go of the suffering self? Because there's probably lots of aspects of ourself which are just fine. <laughs> and I'm not sure we need to really give that so much attention. But the problem is in the suffering. What we're concerned with is the suffering and the conditions that give rise to the suffering. And this is really what we're pointing to. So it helps us break down a little bit more what we're really looking at. In my own exploration, in my own years of practice, when I've reflected on this, I see that the task is really very, very simple. It all, this whole huge body of teaching, this huge complex practice, it can seem very complex at times. It seems very, very simple to me. It all seems to boil down to that when I resist something, I suffer. When I resist the way things are, I suffer. And the more that I resist, the more I suffer. (laughs) There's degrees to it. Or it can just be turned around, depending on how you want to look at it. Maybe when I hold on to what I want, I suffer. Which is really just the other side of the same coin. Because in order to hold on to something, I have to push something else away. And they kind of dance together, they play together. For some people, I think there may be more awareness of the holding or the attaching, the wanting, the longing. This may be a more tangible feeling that arises or a tangible um, sensation or mind state that arises. And for others, there may be more awareness of the aversion and the fear and the resistance, the hatred. But they both have the same energy. 
It's very interesting when we look very close because they both require contraction. In order to hold on to something, if I want to take something in my hand, I have to hold it and tighten my fist. So it requires a kind of holding, a contraction. In the same way, in the aversion or the pushing away, I have to tighten to push it. I have to tighten my body in order to push something out. And so really they're very similar energies. And they're just two sides of the same coin. Holding and pushing, holding and pushing, resisting, wanting, longing. It's all this movement of of energy in the mind and the body that plays, that dances as we go through the day. And it's this identification and discovery of these movements of the mind and body, this attachment and aversion or resistance. This is really what has given shape to my spiritual journey. I remember, you know, even five years ago saying to somebody when he said, well, what's your practice now? And I said, just watching the movements of mind towards and away, towards and away, just that that wanting and the pushing, the wanting and the resisting. just seemed that this, was the, this dance was so alive. And it rises in the mind through thought, image, and then the, the feeling, the corresponding feeling that comes up, the tightening, the contraction, the emotions that arise through this whole dance. And it seems in some way that it hasn't changed. It's still the same, this watching, observing, being with this times of resistance, not wanting, fear, avoidance, and feeling that energy in my body. And then relaxing, breathing, opening, softening. The same feeling, the holding or the wanting, the attaching, the grasping, ah, releasing, softening, breathing. And in some ways it doesn't seem, my practice doesn't seem to change so much. But just these movements of mind, the dance, the play of life, all pointing to learning how to live with what is. Now in its simplicity, just learning how to live with what is. And this seems to be what brings peace and calm and equanimity. When we can, I mean, you've had the moments when there's not been the resistance or the longing for something different. And there's just this sense of calm, you know, not being bothered. Everything's all right. That play isn't acting up. And so it seems that the teachings are pointing to this dance, this movement, this swings of aversion and attachment coming to some equilibrium. And so the learning also as to what interferes with this peace, with this calm, 
which is equanimity? What are the conditions that give rise to this? This learning, this discovery, can also be called getting real with ourselves. (laughs) It's like we're finally getting real. Now we're really facing the truth of our existence. And it's quite surprising, I mean, in myself, how long that's taken. You know, to sort of chip away the layers of self-image and projection and face the truth of what's what's lying there. What's the truth of these movements? How strong are these movements? What's really going on? Getting real. And it seems that the first step in getting real is the willingness, the willingness to look. And this is a big first step. Because in my experience, it's really only a handful of people. It's not a huge group of people on this planet. If you think of all the people on this planet, how many are really willing to take a look at what's going on in themselves? And all of you here, you would not have come had you not taken this first step. So half the job is done. It makes our job a lot easier. Because the willingness is there. There's a commitment that's there. The second step is the investigation, is looking, (laughs) taking action to investigate, taking, making effort to investigate. And this investigation is what brings about the understanding. It brings about the clarity of what our experience is about. And the third step is learning how to work with the difficulties. We have to learn tools and learn skills so that we know what to do when these, these, whatever we want to call them, sometimes crises (laughs) arise. You know, what do we do? How do we work with it? And the learning of this brings acceptance, brings a kind of acceptance or equanimity to our experience. When we look, when we investigate, when we look at this thing called resistance, we see that resistance arises in relationship to something. There's me and some future event. There's some, some, something that's going to happen in the future that I'm resisting. I don't like, I don't want. I might even have an aversion to it. It may be to a person, me and the person, or me and the situation, or just some sense object. It could be a sound or a taste or some sight, and just some resistance to it, some food, that's being served on the retreat, a sound, somebody coughing or moving in the hall. You see, aversion just arises. So there's me and it. Hmm? There's a self and the object. 
And we've given some substance, as Christopher was talking last night, we've given some substantiality to that object, to that event, to that person, to that sound, to that sight. And so we have this resistance, this pressure there. In order for there to be resistance or aversion or this kind of pressure, there has to be this sense of an other, self and other. In the same with the holding on or the attachment, holding on to something, to some substance, to some object. Me, I, I want that. I want that situation. I want that person. I want that car. I want that object. Self and substance. Me and it. And then the grasping, the holding, the pain that can arise from that. This is called the subject-object duality. We call this the duality. And this is the separation. I am separate from that. So when this feeling arises, this feeling of resistance or this feeling of longing or wanting, for me, this is a signal. It's like a, a, an alarm bell that goes off that, the, uh, that there is the separate self arising. <laughs> the ego is making itself known <laughs> and heard. It's like an alarm bell. You know, the ego has just become real. I have just become something in opposition to something else. I have become something separate from something else. And along with that, this dualistic relationship of other, comes the whole potential for suffering. Sometimes that's quite subtle, and sometimes it's quite strong. It rises in different degrees. So for me, when I feel this resistance or this fear or this holding, this signal, it's just like like an alarm bell. This is the signal for me to return to myself, to come back, to come back to myself and to look deeply. And it's to feel really deeply the resistance and the fear and the wanting, to feel that tangible feeling in the body, to feel the tightness, feel the contraction, feel however that is manifesting in my body. Listening to the story that's developing around the whole situation. As much as possible, dropping the story Because the belief in that story, the belief in the reality of the other in the whole situation is what keeps it all solidified. It keeps it having a sense of reality. So dropping out of the story, coming into the body, feeling, really feeling directly how the experience feels. At first, it can have a sense of me and my feelings. 
So here we are back into this me and other, me and my feelings, me and my, the object of my feelings. Right. Still the duality, still the subject-object relationship. So we drop that thought of my resistance, my fear, my anger, my dislike, and just feeling, feeling the energy, feeling the quality, feeling the cessation. Not mine, just this experience. Not even me being aware of my feelings or my awareness. Sometimes people stop here. It's awareness and feeling. So we're still in subject-object. My awareness and feeling. Not even that. Dropping that. It's just becoming the feeling. So there's nothing else existing but this total awareness of feeling, but they merge. Awareness and feeling merging together, becoming one. Not my awareness, consciousness and feeling arising together, dissolving into each other, no separation. So we become whole, we become one. No separation in that, no pain in that, no suffering in that when we can completely merge into that, into the fullness of that experience, then there's no more resistance. There's no more aversion, no more pushing that away. There's no more holding on to what I really want to have be, be happening right now. It's a total merging with that. This is when the duality collapses. It's not me and what's happening. It's just what's happening. (laughs) Just what's happening. We say this. How many times do we say this on a retreat? Just be with what's happening. (laughs) In the simplicity of that experience, going totally into it, fully into it, And in a way, we get lost in it. This is the kind of lost we want you to experience. (laughs) We get lost in it so that there's nothing else that exists besides this feeling. It becomes so whole, so complete, so total that nothing else exists. By buying into the story, believing, staying caught up in the personal storyline, and resisting and avoiding the feelings that are happening, this actually fixes the whole experience. This is what solidifies the experience, gives substance to the experience that then we think we have to push away and get rid of. Is this, this whole thing gets created through the believing in it as mine and as something that I have to get rid of. And in the solidity, this is what causes the body to go stiff and go rigid. 
We talk about feeling, you know, a rigid wall around our heart. You know, this is what causes the rigidity, is the avoidance, is the resistance to the truth of our experience. And it can, we can become so rigid in the fear, in the resistance, that it actually causes inaction, that the body just shuts down and you can't move. I know probably everybody has experienced this to some degree, where you just stop. You get so frightened, so caught up in the experience that there's no possibility of movement. This is the extreme case of the solidification of the experience. This I know very well. (laughs) It's not foreign to me whatsoever. But taking a look, using the teachings that we're pointing to here, by turning the attention, going inside, we can see perhaps it's not so solid. The idea of solidity, the idea of substance, isn't actually the way way we think it is. That, in fact, there's a whole lot more going on than what we think when we take a look. We can see directly into the myth of substantiality and solidity. We see the changing nature of things. We see the thoughts coming and going. We see the movements of the energy. We feel the energy moving in the body. It's alive. There's an aliveness to it. And when we start to see this and not buy into, so, into the story so much and into the feeling so much, it all starts to loosen up. There's a little more space around the whole thing. The thoughts don't stay stuck. The energy's moving more easily. And then we see the truth of its existence. We can say that we see the empty nature, empty of self, empty of me, of mine, my feelings. When we talk about emptiness, we talk about empty of self, empty of substance, not empty of life, empty of energy. And when we see in this way, then that which has seemed solid just dissolves into the flow of life, into the life force itself. It doesn't disappear. We're not looking to make this go away or to dissolve into non-existence or um, the body dissolves into nothingness. No, this isn't what we're pointing to. It's the dissolution of the solidity into life into the flow of life. Not something to get rid of, but something to see what's actually there and to feel the aliveness. This is the aliveness of life, these feelings that flow through us. This is the life force. This is where the vitality lives. There was one woman today in the the interview meeting who said, When I looked into the fear, there was the energy. 
She said it just like that. There was the energy. It was like, oh, the life just came. It wasn't that she had to get rid of the fear, but the life was in the fear, in looking in a particular way. And we see that this becomes the magical display, sort of the play, the dance of life, the appearances on the screen coming and going, playing. We are that. Nothing to get rid of, just the transformation of perception. So we see in just a little different way. And by seeing again and again and again, it seems we have to see again and again and again, that which seemed to have the solidity and the power loses its power because we're no longer reinforcing it. We're no longer giving it substantiality. We're no longer giving itself. And so it's like starving it. Little by little, it just loses its power. As Ramana said, it's like a burnt rope. It has shape, but no strength to tie anything with. No power. So when we're looking in this way, when we're working with ourselves in this way, we're not reinforcing fear and resistance, but we're encouraging patience, and compassion, and awareness, and non-reactivity. It's like we're doing by, by allowing ourselves to be with our experience in this way, we're actually encouraging the very qualities that we want for ourselves. Because we're not reinforcing the other. And non-reactivity is love. When we're not being reactive, we're in a place of love. We're embracing it. We're not trying to change it. We're holding it with love and tenderness. And with practice and with determination and working with ourselves in this way, then love begins to have a foothold in consciousness. These qualities start to be more of what we experience in consciousness. And the whole thing starts to shift. There's a Lama who some of us are starting to practice with. And from his book, Natural Great Perfection, he says that in seeing the extent of suffering arising from ignorance and delusion, which is seeing the self in other. When one sees the vastness of this suffering, only then can genuine feelings of compassion and wishes to free those beings develop in our mind. And without becoming depressed or pessimistic, but rather to see things as they are, one can bring forth the best in ourselves to help relieve that suffering for ourselves and all beings everywhere. So it's in the actual seeing of the suffering, opening to the suffering, that the compassion arises. It gives a doorway 
for the compassion to come forth. And maybe many of you have heard the word bodhicitta. What I just described is the bodhicitta vow. Taking the vow to go deeply into suffering to allow the compassion to arise and the compassion, compassion in the form of action action to relieve the suffering that we see in ourselves and in other beings. But this is not so far away from us. This is something that is very, very close to home. And each of us experience it every day, feeling that that love arising or that kindness or that tenderness towards ourselves and others. When I was teaching in Canada this summer, there was a woman on the retreat who was really quite shy. And I could tell that she was really doing a lot of work with herself, but it was still quite difficult, difficult for her to express herself, to come forth, to, to speak honestly about the truth. And at the end of the retreat, she shared a poem. Well, it's actually a letter that she had written to herself. And afterwards, I asked her, I said, would you please give me a copy of that? I was so moved by it, so touched by it. And I'll just just share with you part of the letter. Letter to myself. I want you to know that I am here for you. I will take your hand if you hold it out. I will put my arms around you if you will let me. I recognize the little girl within you, the little girl who lost much of herself in the silence and secrecy and who is afraid to trust herself, the little girl who is afraid to speak and let her real self show and who is so alone on the inside, the little girl who becomes so impatient with knowing herself and who who is so afraid of accepting herself. My arms are here for this little girl within you, to hold and to recognize her. I also recognize the woman within you, the woman who is struggling to emerge, the woman who is slowly learning to trust herself, the woman who is trying to understand, embrace her own sexual energy, the woman who is trying to be patient with learning to accept herself. My arms are here for this woman within you to hold and to recognize her. And I know that you can hurt yourself, that you can be angry, that you can become confused, that you can be obsessive, that you can scare yourself. However, I also want you to know, I know that you have compassion inside for yourself and others, that you have joy, intelligence, creativity, playfulness, and a desire to live life passionately and with intimacy. I want to recognize and have compassion for all of you, the little girl and the emerging woman. My arms are here for you. It's not so far behind. As we start to go deep in ourselves and the practice and start to give commitment to this, something starts to emerge. It it has to. 
it starts to show itself. It starts to reveal its face. And we're being asked to go into every corner, every hiding place, leaving no stone unturned, no part left out, to examine everything until we discover and fully merge with the truth of our existence. There was another man on another retreat I was teaching in another place in Canada, in Saskatchewan. And he had come on the retreat no, actually, it's the other way around. The other woman was in Saskatchewan, and this woman, this man was in Toronto. <laughs> and he had come on the retreat because he had just had surgery, and he was having a, he had a biopsy, and his head was, he had no hair whatsoever on his head, and he had a big scar on the back of his head. <clears throat> And he said that he wanted to come to the retreat because he was waiting for the results of the test. And he couldn't just be in his life doing <clears throat> kind of tedious things and things that weren't very important. He really felt he needed to stay fully with this experience, which I thought was incredibly courageous. <clears throat> so he, he was just doing marvelous. And then I asked him, please tell me what happens when you get your results. And so about a few weeks later, he sent me a letter. And he said that the way that they had interpreted the results, they couldn't tell whether it had actually progressed or not. So we had to wait another period of weeks. And he said that during that time, what he wanted to do, he was a physician, a gynecologist, and he said what he wanted to do was create a uh, support group for people who were in the same situation in their families and help them. He sent me a poem that he had written during this time. <clears throat> and it's called, I as Onion. <clears throat> The last week of treatment, phew, as if I were an onion being peeled almost to the core, a process of individuation I endure. Did I ask for these revelations? Cancer, the great varnish remover, has dissolved and continues to insolve those many layers of painted coats and stylized masks we all sadly wear. Questions, questions in the night. What meaning to this puny life? What relevance of I to them? I feel the halyards of my ego strained and seem naked as a newborn. A stronger force has me in its grips, pulling, and I, weakened by fight and disease, succumb to its beckoning. How many layers have I to shed? With each new one exposed, more light appears, illuminating from within. 
I glimpse a place of quiet, a sanctuary at my core, awaiting me to shed the last opacity. He underlined and starred a stronger force. This force that pulls on us. It's pulling on every one of us. Can we let go into it? Can we trust it? Shed our resistance to it. Let go of our imagined ideas of what we think is going to bring us relief. Our ideas, our memories, our hopes, and just let go into it, into that which is pulling us. Surrendering to that deeper call Or as this man says, the light illuminating from within. This sanctuary at my core, awaiting me to shed my last opacity. tonight with a poem that a woman named Opal Whiteley wrote when she was a child. Today, near even time, I did lead the girl who has no seeing a little way into the forest where it was darkness and shadows were. I led her toward a shadow that was coming our way. It did touch her cheeks with its velvety fingers, and now she too does have likings for shadows, and her fear that was is gone. Let's sit for a few minutes together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.